Today, it's Halloween in the U.S. And we're going to tell some frightening ESG investing tales just to celebrate. But before we do, I wanted to know exactly how frightening these stories are. So I asked the most obvious person in my life that I could ask. My seven-year-old daughter. Say hello. Hello. Um, I was thinking about dressing up as an entrenched board of directors who doesn't ever have an annual meeting. Do you think that's kind of scary? Uh, no, it's just a person, I think. So what if I dressed up as a job applicant who goes through the whole process and then on the day I'm supposed to start my job, I just don't show up? Is that scary? Uh, I guess it's scary to other people because you th they think like you did something in your work that's wrong, so you had to stay home. Or, well, it's not scares me. It doesn't. So it doesn't scare you. What if I dress up as a giant technology conglomerate? Giant technology conglomerate. I don't even know what that is, but I don't think it's very scary. Um, well, it's a scary thing. Actually, you know who is afraid of those things? What? Investors. If they're not afraid of those things, maybe they should be. This uh. is the part where you do a, a really crazy laugh. today's show, it's Halloween. So we got a few of our most terrifying analysts together to tell three different stories. And the first story is a chilling tale of human capital gone wrong. And the second is a macabre story of what might end up being patient zero in the corporate zombie apocalypse. And third, what happens when you tinker with what it means to be a business and create a Frankenstein? We're going to keep it really light for this episode. And by the time you're done, you might want to ask yourself, are there zombies, ghosts, or Frankensteins in my portfolio? So we're going to camp it up this episode. Let me just cue up the sound effects. Chapter 1. Your human capital is haunted. Ah, there we go. So our first story comes from Bentley Kaplan. Bentley is a senior analyst in our South Africa office. And the story Bentley surfaced might actually be scarier for a company than for an investor. Because 10 years ago, if you were a company looking to hire someone, your biggest worry was cost. Bringing on new employees is expensive. You have to onboard them. You have to train them. You sometimes have to pay upfront signing bonuses. And then there's the risk of underperformance over time. So every hire was a question. How much can we afford? But today, the job market, especially in the U.S., is pretty strong. And the balance of power isn't what it used to be. Now your biggest worry? You might actually be hiring a ghost. All right. Well, once upon a time... 
Oh, I should preface the story by saying that, yes, when I told Bentley we were doing a Halloween episode, dude went all in. Once upon a time, typical American company was a powerful safe haven, dispensing highly prized jobs to the talented, the eager, and the deserving. Sure, it may have been a bit tricky to find exactly the right person for the job, but an extended offer was really declined, and even if it was, it was done with grace and graciousness. And what golden days those were. Out of the ether of Instagram, avocado toast, and flaky millennials, there emerged the candidate ghost. No longer compliant, polite, or waiting to hear about a potential offer, these wispy apparitions are offered interviews and jobs, and just as they're about to onboard and slide behind their freshly cleaned desk, they vanish. Poof. That's a vanishing noise, just by the way. <laughs> Leaving behind nothing but unanswered calls and haunting self-reflection. I... Um... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will put a vanishing noise right there. I'm going to make a poof sound. Cool. Cool. I, I got a question that's going to make me sound old. Is this like a swipe right, left? I don't know. Swipe generation? Or is this like a company problem? Is there something wrong with the companies? Or is it something else? It's it's a good question. I think the, you know, the... There's definitely a, a sense of, you know, reading these articles about ghosting out there, and there's definitely these, you know, these, these subtle hints and triggers about millennials um, destroying the diamond industry and fabric softener and all kinds of things that we are collectively doing as a generation. Um, but I think no one really knows, you know, exactly what's going on. Um, the actual numbers of ghosting are a little bit thin on the ground. But uh, if you look at the U.S. right now, there's just, you know, jobs are, uh, are much more readily available. So it's a lot easier for, for someone just to, to turn their back on a company and just vanish without really having, you know, worrying about losing a potential, you know, potential employer in the future. Um, and, I, you know, the candidate experience, like, uh, you know, I think there's, you know, people talking about what it was like to go through a job interview experience. But I think companies really do not, you know, now are thinking about talent management, not just in terms of, um, in terms of their, their actual hires or, you know, maybe sponsoring the odd, you know, university scholarship. But I think now is a question of how you manage your very first interactions with someone, um, even if you aren't sure that, that they're going to accept a job. So I think it does put things a little bit more on the level. Um, and if you don't do that, I think you might end up with a few more ghosts than you'd be prepared to handle. So what does Bentley's story tell us? We know that hiring can be a long, expensive process, tying up resources and limiting productivity until jobs are filled. We know there's a new generation who's not afraid to walk away from a job offer, unlike in the past. And we know that companies now have to think of talent management as an end-to-end -end process, from first touch with a prospect, through their career, and even to the exit. So what does that mean if you're an investor? Well, we did a study about three years ago on human capital management that suggested companies that don't have robust talent management abilities they actually have more expensive employees for the same amount of productivity. And worse, when they're hiring or when there's high turnover, either plus or minus, they actually tend to have more volatile earnings. And in three years since we published that report, the job market's only gotten stronger. And the result, as Bentley says, maybe there are more ghosts than you bargained for. Chapter 2 the corporate zombie apocalypse. So our second storyteller is Andrew Young. And Andrew uncovered something that should make almost any investor shudder. 
But to understand it, you actually need to understand two simple concepts first. The first one is board entrenchment. Entrenchment is what happens when a director sits on the same board for a really long time, sometimes decades. It's the idea that an outsider, after a long period of time, can actually become an insider. And it changes how effective they can be about making decisions. The Harvard Business Review has found that there is actually an optimal board tenure for a director, after which entrenchment sets in and board decisions become conflicted uh, and destructive to firm value. The methodology for testing this uh, from the academic was quite interesting. Um, the study looked at changes in board structure because of the death of a director. Um, and this method, <laughs> yeah, um, the methodology was uh, was was very effective for controlling uh, for uh, for uh, any and all reasons why a director might otherwise leave the board. Yeah, could we digress for like a nanosecond here? Because it it boards are so old that they can actually do a study about the death of directors <laughs> writ large. I mean, that's pretty morbid. With, with a big enough sample, yeah. So the second concept is so obvious, it might be frightening that it sometimes doesn't happen. And that's the idea that boards, at some point during the year, boards should meet. And these meetings, they can talk about compensation or economic trends or how a company is exposed to risk. They can talk about logistics. It's really the act of performing the basic board function, which is representing shareholders and managing the management team of a company. But the scary part is some boards actually don't meet, or at least they don't disclose that they do. Most of the time, there would be an obvious reason not to meet when a board doesn't, like a pending merger or a company breakup. But sometimes shareholders are left completely in the dark about whether there was a meeting, what happened if there was a meeting, and if actual directors attended that meeting. Andrew found a single company out of 2,700, a pretty big company where investors have no idea what the board might be talking about at all. And they met once that we could find, and we only know that they met to set another meeting date. And this company has a board full of entrenched board members. It's pretty close to what we in ESG would call a zombie board. Um. And this, this company um, is uh, the Mexican telecom incumbent, uh, America Mobile. Um, the company controls around three quarters of the Mexican telecom market. Um, in other words, it's uh, the monopoly player uh, in that market. Um, the company is owned, uh, and so the board is also controlled by Mr. Carlos Slim. Uh, he's one of the world's richest persons. Um, and uh, by restricting what's called proxy access, uh, Mr. Slim also gets to appoint his own board. So, um, as I see it, um, the board is actually an enlightened, self-aware zombie. Uh, the appointed entrenched board realizes that they won't add any value to any decision-making that goes on at the firm, so instead they decide to take the day off. <laughs> they are the self-aware zombie. So Andrew found maybe the one board so self-aware as to decide against actually doing the work of a board, a full-on zombie board. But for an investor, it should really be a bit disconcerting. 
Because it's one thing to have what we call a zombie director on the board. There's just one director who investors didn't elect with the majority of votes. But it's entirely different to own shares of a controlled company where the whole board might just be more interested in eating shareholder value than producing it. Chapter 3. Victor Franken Company. For our third story, we're going to go back to Bentley for a tale about how monsters get made. And preface, seriously, Bentley was totally down for a Halloween experience. Well, there you go. It is a dark and stormy night in Bavaria, the year is 1792, and a young scientist torn by grief after losing... Okay, okay. I'm sure I'm ruining the mood here, but I'm going to spare you the whole rehash. Bentley is talking about Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein. I'll jump you to the part where this gets scary for investors. And even though Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein back in 1818, it would turn out that similar monsters would be stalking the shadows of Wall Street 200 years later. So, you see, Frankenstein was about a lot of things, and, and uh, I think you've already cut the segment way down, so let's not get into all of those things. Um, <laughs> but the one thing that, that really, you know, took away with me was, you know, ambition to make an oversized creation by bringing together all these unrelated parts is, is basically the story of conglomerates, right? And I think we've, you know, we've kind of left that golden age of conglomerates behind us where, you know, big was beautiful, and some of them, you know, it kind of worked, maybe, Siemens and Philips. But there were some other really weird companies, too, um, maybe even uglier than the, than the, you know, the original Frankenstein monster. Uh, Litton Industries, for example, I think it was a defense contractor that ended up buying a frozen foods business. As you um, did. And Gulf and Western. Yeah, because they wanted to actually, do, I, exactly. I, think, I, I think they were actually loading frozen peas into the machine gun units of airplanes. It's just, it's a natural synergy. Isn't that, isn't like all but, like conglomeration about synergy? That's what it's about. Uh, yeah, that's what it's sold as, I think, you know. I don't know what's going on, you know, behind the, the doors of power. I don't know if it's just a question of you get really tired after dropping missiles and it's nice to have some ice cream afterwards. Um, <laughs> or, you know, what the case is there. But uh, And then I think there was another company, Gulf and Western, which yeah, at one point I think had zinc mines and the Miss Universe pageant and Paramount Pictures. So I'm not sure about synergy between those things. Maybe zinc for some of the crowns at Miss Universe pageant, which was a talent pipeline to Paramount Pictures. I'm not sure. Anyway. Yeah, there's so, a win. That's um, you own the whole supply chain right there. Exactly, exactly. Um, I think by and large the consensus is now moving away from that. You know, traditional industrial conglomerate is is pretty pretty much dead. Um, and people are, are nudging them away to the North Pole to die of natural causes. Um, so we're seeing some of the the giants. I think like GE and ABB are now being split up. Sometimes willingly, and then sometimes not. Sometimes being nudged by a village of, of angry shareholders wielding pitchforks and proxy cards. So while it sounds like in Bentley's story, this is the end of the conglomerate as it used to be, even as the sun sets on these kinds of companies, these manufacturing conglomerates, Bentley points out there are new ones being made now, and they're totally different. And I think you know what what we need to be worried about going forward is uh, is a new a new kind of conglomerate, which is you know very much the uh, the tech companies. So Amazon and Alibaba and Google they're moving into you know into their supply chains. They're moving horizontally, vertically, and you know eating up all kinds of things around them. Um, and and what we're seeing for some of these companies is that 
the, they're, they're pretty strongly controlled. So, so even you know, a village of angry shareholders is not really enough to, to start breaking them apart. And I think and unlike Victor Frankenstein, you know, the founders of these companies are very much still in love with them and what they do. So um, it might be a lot harder to stop these, these, new, these new tech Frankensteins than, uh, than some of the industrial conglomerates that are, that are slowly dying. So I'm pretty sure the most frightening thing about this podcast might be we just called Jeff Bezos Frankenstein. Well, first of all, if Jeff Bezos is listening, and I'm, I'm sure he's listening to he's our podcast, um, I think exactly, he's totally listening. I think what 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 we're saying is is that you know he's he, he's a, a young ambitious genius, which is what Victor Frankenstein was. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of unstitching them and, and whether there's a scale question, I think that's, you know, that's why I, I, I'm not willing to say that this is a bad thing, you know, necessarily for the company shareholders. It's a very different game to, to conglomerates where scale meant something very different. You know, maybe you could, you know, there was a question of having enough manufacturing, whereas now it's a question of, you know, owning, basically owning data and owning supply chains together. And that's a very, very different kind of beast. So as an investor, like Bentley points out, getting value from these conglomerates, making more than the sum of the parts, means taking on totally different kinds of risk today than it used to. Because it used to be about how to find manufacturing synergies or maybe different revenue streams. But today it's much more targeted. It's about owning your supply chain. And maybe more importantly, it's about owning the data. And when the data is the commodity, there's no telling what kind of value could be extracted or what kind of terror. And that's our Halloween show for today. I want to thank our storytellers, Andrew Young and Bentley Kaplan. And I want to thank Dan Rogachnik for sage advice throughout the storytelling process. And our reviewers, Megan Eastman and Rick Marshall, thanks as ever. And thanks to Sen, my daughter, who rolls her eyes every time I put a microphone in her face. And this is ESG Now. I'm your host, Matt Muscardi. If you like what you heard, subscribe and rate us. We're on iTunes and Stitcher and most places you can get a podcast. And we'll be back soon with more content. So thanks and keep listening. MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. 
Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.